Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, which is where we're going to begin, but we're not going to really spend much time there as we're continuing on in our series on the sovereignty of God and salvation. This is just kind of our launch text, which shows us that God is sovereign in salvation, and then um, we'll be all over the place this morning. So have your Bibles out and ready to flip from place to place. Robert Morgan, in his historical devotion on this day, relates this historical account. The English ship Bounty, commanded by Lieutenant William Bly, journeyed to the South Pacific in 1787 to collect plants of the breadfruit tree. Sailors signed on gladly, considering the voyage a trip to paradise. Having no second in command, Captain Bly appointed his young friend Fletcher Christian to the post. The Bounty stayed in Tahiti six months. And the sailors, led by happy-go-lucky Fletcher Christian, enjoyed paradise to the full. When the time came for departure, some of the men wanted to stay behind with their island girls. Three men tried to desert, were flogged. The mood of the ship darkened. And on April 28, 1789, Fletcher Christian staged the most famous mutiny in history. Bly and his supporters were set adrift... In an overloaded lifeboat, which they miraculously navigated 3,700 miles to Timor in safety. The mutineers aboard the bounty began quarreling about what to do next. Christian returned to Tahiti, where he took, where he left some of the mutineers, kidnapped some women, took some slaves, and traveled 1,000 miles to an uninhabited Pitcairn Island. There, the little group quickly unraveled. They distilled whiskey from a native plant. Drunkenness and fighting marked their colony. Disease and murder eventually took the lives of all the men except for one. Alexander Smith, who found himself the only man in the island, surrounded by an assortment of women and children. Then an amazing change occurred. Smith found the bounty's neglected Bible. He read it. He took its message to heart, then began instructing the little community. He taught the colonists the scriptures and helped them obey its instructions. The message of Christ so transformed their lives that 20 years later, in 1808, when the topaz landed on the island, it found a happy society of Christians living in prosperity and peace, free from crime, disease, murder, and mutiny, end quote. Now, we read a story like that, and stories like that are pretty common in history. It happens to individuals. It happens to families. It happens to communities, and it's even happened to entire nations. Where before we were sinners, we are in rebellion against God, we're committing mutiny against our creator. And then at a point after that, the Bible intercedes. We hear the gospel message and then no longer are we like we were. And this story is just one of countless others. God changes people through the book of books. Now open your Bible to that book of books, to Luke chapter 10, if you haven't already, and follow along as I read verses 21 through 24. Luke writes, at that very time, he that is Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. 
Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things that you see and did not see them, and to hear the things that you hear and did not hear them. This text follows on the heels of the 70 disciples returning from their little evangelistic tour that Jesus sent them to the cities where he was going to preach. He gave them power to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to preach the gospel. And they did that, and they came back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them. But Jesus says, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Then Jesus, modeling what he's telling them to do, then begins to rejoice in himself over seven things. He says that he is pleased, he rejoices that God is pleased, well pleased to hide the truth from some so they will not be saved. Secondly, that God is well pleased to reveal the truth to others so they will be saved. Third, that God has handed all things over to the Son, specifically who and who will not be saved. Four, that only the Father knows the Son. Five, that only the Son knows the Father. Six, Jesus chooses who can know the Father in a saving way. And seven... Jesus reminds them the kings and prophets of the past wished to see and hear the things that they had seen and heard. Now, in this section, among these seven things, there is this glaring truth, and that truth is that God is sovereign in salvation. He is the one who lets people understand or does not let them understand, reveals the truth or does not reveal the truth. Jesus is the one who lets people know the Father or not. And so God's got a say. He's got the say on who gets saved. And that is what we are slowing down in this series to examine in more detail. And since this whole text is about the salvation of men, we started talking about men. We talked about the creation of man, his composite natures, that he is both physical and spiritual. We also talked about how he was made in the image of God and what that means, his, his characteristics and his function. We talked about man and his fall, that is the fall of man, and how all men are sinners and how all men deserve to be judged because of their sin. And we talked about how men are totally depraved, which means that in every part of their being, they are corrupt. That is, in every part of their being, sin has affected them. The curse has affected them. And so we looked at that. And we discovered that man is waterlogged in sin. He is spiritually dead. Sin has affected man through and through. So they don't want to come to Christ. They will not believe the truth. They love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. Their heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else. Their reasoning is twisted. Their conscience is defiled. Their speculations are futile and every intent of their thoughts or of their heart are only evil continuously. The scriptures make it clear that the unbeliever cannot understand the things of God because they don't have this Holy Spirit within them. And that none seek after God, not even one. 
And all these things are inside of man working against them. But not only that, we talked about the external things, those things outside of men that are working against them. We have Satan and demons and evil men. And we have the world who are also blockading people from coming to Christ. And the question we ask is, how then can anyone ever get saved? Because it it is impossible for anyone to come to Christ in their spiritually dead, God-hating state. They just won't do it. We saw that the scriptures taught that. Now, the question then, how does anyone ever come to salvation? The answer is, it takes a miracle of God. A miracle of God. A miracle is when God sets aside natural processes in order to do something beyond natural or supernatural. And when someone comes to Christ, it's not natural. It's not normal. It is supra or beyond natural. And so when we started to answer the question, in light of man's curse, corrupted, depraved state, how does anyone ever come to salvation? We started at the very beginning and we talked about predestination, terms that relate to predestination. Then we also talked about um, just how predestination is taught. We looked at all the key scriptures and answered some of the common questions people have about that. And if you weren't here up to this point, you need to listen to those messages because I can't review them, though it would be fun, but it would take hours. (laughs) And so this morning, I want to address two other categories of truth. Two other categories of truth that relate to the sovereignty of God and salvation and teach us that God is in fact the one who saves people, and that he is sovereign over who gets saved. And the first point I want to focus your attention on is this. You have the gospel bomb, so use it. You have the gospel bomb, so use it. Though the scriptures teach that God is the only one who can save anybody, that salvation is of the Lord... God has also decreed that men be saved through the gospel. The gospel. That simple message that God became a man, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, lived to die, willingly gave himself up, was crucified for the sins of men, was buried and rose again on the third day. That simple little message is infused with power. With power. It is the bomb. It's the bomb. Paul in Romans chapter 10 verses 14 through 17 explains the means God has sanctioned to bring sinners to repentance. And he says this, how then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed a report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You want somebody to come to faith? They've got to hear the gospel. They gotta have the bomb dropped on them. Saving faith is always the byproduct of the gospel being heard and understood. This is why John the Baptist, this is why Jesus, this is why the apostles, this is why faithful men and women of God have always 
told other people about the gospel because it's the thing that saves people. It's the only thing that saves people. Nothing else will save anybody. And so what does it tell us? Listen, the gospel is the salvation bomb and it is the only thing that can knock down all those external and internal barriers that keep men and women from coming to Christ. It's the only thing that will get through. You know, sometimes you can get self-centered. When we think of sharing the gospel with somebody, we are fearful that we know we're not smart enough and we're not gifted enough and we're not godly enough and we're not trained enough or prayed up enough or something enough. And so we're just inadequate in and of ourselves to lead somebody to Christ. And it's true, we are inadequate. But God doesn't save people because you're smart. He doesn't save people because you're godly. And he doesn't save people because you're all prayed up. He saves people because he has infused this simple little message with power. I have known of people who were unbelievers, knew they were unbelievers, shared the gospel with somebody, and people came to Christ, and later on they came to Christ. I've known of people who have professed to be Christians, thought they were Christians, shared the gospel with people, those people came to Christ, and later on they went apostate and are still not walking with the Lord. And I know people who weren't even there. There was just a Gideon Bible. And they read it. And they came to Christ. There's power. You don't even need a person. You just need the power infused in that word. And that word gets into people's hearts and it just breaks them. You you know, you look at some people and go, oh, that person could never come to Christ. They're scary. (laughs) They're big. They're mean. They're they're nasty. They hate God. Every time I even mention anything about God, don't tell me about that religion junk. That is like the very person God's going to save. That is just the throes of death. God arm wrestling their heart and making them submit to the Savior. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. I just want to show you, Paul is defending himself in this letter against false teachers, false apostles, who have infiltrated the church at Corinth. And he says this. This is fun. Verse 3. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 10. Sorry. 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh. And he's talking about our physical bodies. Though we're walking around in these physical bodies in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, which means you don't have them in and of yourselves. Somebody has to give them to you. If they're not of you and of your flesh, they're spiritual. God has to give them to you. They're not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. And just think about that. Divinely powerful. How powerful is God anyways? I remember when Star Wars came out. And I saw that lightsaber. I thought, oh, cool. That was so cool. I just thought, man, that thing's powerful. It just like cut someone's arm off, cut them in two. It could go through steel. It's power. Well, here we're talking about the power of God. A weapon 
that contains in it the power of God. And people, that is powerful. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What kind of fortresses? He tells us. Look at verse 5. We are destroying. Here's the first fortress. We are destroying with our spiritual weapons that contain the power of God. Speculations, that is false speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That is lies, deceptions, error. And we are taking every thought captive to obedience to to Christ the fortresses we can destroy with the spiritual weapons that contain the power of God are all the internal and external barriers which keep people from coming to Christ prayer the gospel the word of God faith contain the power of God almighty These spiritual weapons are able to destroy all the mental fortresses, all the lies, all the deceptions that people cling to so they will not come to Christ. And they just obliterate them and blow them out of the way. I just love it when some hardened sinner comes to Christ. I mean, their testimonies are so great, aren't they? You know, when they give these testimonies of just how God just broke them. This is nothing great to see some huge biker up there just weeping. (laughs) Tattoos everywhere, you know, it's scary. It's all dressed in leather, a big chain on his wallet. (laughs) You're thinking, man, what happened to that guy? Someone dropped the bomb on the guy. His heart is just totally broken, totally wasted. He's totally humbled. He sees his sin. He sees the danger he's in. He sees Christ. He sees what Christ did for him. He instantly falls in love with Jesus and he receives Christ as a savior and he's willing to turn from his sins and follow Christ. He's been bombed by the gospel. Turn over to Romans chapter one, verse 16. Kind of the theme verse of the book of Romans theme book of the of romans paul you can see his faith here being put into action when he says for i am not ashamed of the gospel why aren't you ashamed paul for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek is there any doubt in paul's mind that the gospel has power none it is the The only definite article, the little the there, the power of God for all who believe, whether you're Jew or you're Greek, the only way you come to Christ is through the power of God contained in the gospel of God. The question is, do you believe the gospel can destroy the fortresses of an incurably wicked heart, a darkened understanding, a defiled conscience that refuses to come to Christ? Do you believe the gospel can quicken a sinner from the dead and turn them from a lover of darkness to a lover of light and transform them into the image of Christ? This simple, easy message that it can push away Satan, push away demons, push away evil men, push away the love of the world so that the truth can get in. Do you believe that? Paul did. The scriptures do. That's what they teach. The gospel is the power of God. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn over there. Sorry, if you have a new Bible, you're going to break it in this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul talks about his methodology for reaching the Corinthians. And this is such a great section because he not only explains what he did and how he did it, but why he did it. And he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, you know, on their way to hell. But to us who are being saved on our way to heaven, it is the power of God. Did you see that? The power of God. Look down at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, notice they're called, predestined first. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. The power of God. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 3. Notice what it says there. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That is the power of God flowing through this little simple message that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. I mean, that is exactly what Paul says at the end of the book in chapter 15 when he's talking about the resurrection. He says, you Corinthians, you know what I made known to you of a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again. He says, that is the message that you heard from me. That is the message you received from me. That is the message you stand on by which you are saved. The bomb. That simple little message is the bomb. And it's the only thing that can do it. It can get right into a person's head and heart and destroy them. But why don't people drop the bomb more? Why are we so careful about bomb dropping? I just want you to know, just recently I was at... uh, a little memorial service for my mom who died a while back, but we decided to have the service this summer, last weekend. And so we get to uh, my my brother's house, and there's all these relatives. My brothers and sisters are there. There's a lot of us there. So they say, could you MC?" <laughs> I just want you to know, as soon as they said MC, I could just hear that thing whistling through the air. <laughs> I mean, it's coming. Now you want me to MC? You get the bomb. Every time. I don't care if you're mad. I have some sisters who do not like the gospel. They do not want to submit to God. They do not want to repent of their sins. They don't want God telling them what to do. So, what did I do? And I go, oh, I'm really sorry. Alice. You know, I don't want to offend you. And I know you're my sister and I'm trying to be at peace. No, bombs away! <laughs> Out it comes. I did a little micro exposition of John chapter 3 and dropped the bomb. But why is it that people don't like to drop the bomb? Three primary reasons. One, they don't believe the gospel has power in it. They don't believe the gospel is really can change a person's life. They just think it's kind of like a fluke of nature that certain people get really fanatic and religious and become holy and walk away from their former manner of life and never go back. 
And so they don't believe it. And so they don't do it. And all I can say to that is that the Bible says that the powers contained in the gospel and that every Christian is living proof. Every true believer who has been transformed by the grace of God is living proof that the gospel has power in it to transform a person's life and break down those barriers inside and out, which keep us from coming to salvation. Secondly, sometimes we just want to do it our way. You know, we look at the scriptures and say, yeah, it's true. It's true that, you know, um, it's true that, you know, Paul preached the gospel and the apostles did that. But times have changed. We live in a modern era. You know, we need to live among intellectuals and people who are smart. You know, we can't just do things like we did before. Things are different now. And so we kind of know the gospel and we could share the gospel. We kind of dance all around it and we never let it out of the hatch. Instead, we, we talk about reading our Bibles. We talk about going to church and the good deeds that we do, our service to the Lord. We try to prove that God exists or the Bible is his word. We argue about the fallacies of evolution. Maybe present some rational arguments to convince unbelievers that they should become Christians, but they never do, ever do, ever, ever, ever do, unless the bomb is dropped. They never come. They never get saved. We spend five hours talking to some intellectual, and we walk away, and you know what? The bomb is still in the bomb bay. Because we didn't open up our mouth and let it out. And that person will never get saved until someone drops that message on them. Ever. And other times we're afraid of collateral damage. You know, when you have to share the gospel, when, when you're about ready to share the gospel with family members, especially people who know you and maybe knew you before you were saved. You can be fearful of men, fearful of persecution, fearful of rejection, fearful of being, you know, mocked or persecuted or whatever, of causing division in your family, division among your friends, getting fired, whatever it is. You're scared and you are so scared that you decide to not say anything. You know, in World War Two, when those Two atom bombs, what is it, a little boy and fat man, were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those were really inefficient atom bombs. I mean, they didn't really know what they were doing. It was a new technology. And man, they did some major damage. And the whole world trembled. And now the whole world is really fearful because now the atomic weapons we have are really efficient. They're way more powerful. And anybody who's sane is concerned about an all-out nuclear war because of all the collateral damage. And so everybody's holding back. And no one has launched a nuclear missile since that time against another country in war. And it's a good thing. But when it comes to the gospel, it's not a good thing. When out of fear for what might happen to you, what might happen as a consequence, what might happen to somebody else, you don't drop the bomb on somebody and just go, well, you know, we'll just let them roast in hell for eternity because I love them. I mean, think about it. Come on. That's not a loving thing to do. 
If you want people to come to Christ, there's only one thing that works. It's the gospel because the gospel contains the power of God. That little message that Jesus, you know, God incarnate was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life died a substitutionary death on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day, that if you believe in that and trust in that completely, God will save you. That little message is the bomb. And you've got to drop it or no one comes to Christ ever. Secondly, God is sovereign not only because he's the one who puts power in the bomb, God is sovereign because he works to save those he has chosen. And I just want to give you six different proofs or categories which argue for God's sovereignty and salvation. The first is God saves us by grace and mercy, not by our good deeds or anything else we do. Now, grace and mercy are similar. Grace is when you receive something you don't deserve. You know, you're a disobedient little rebel. And your parent goes, oh, since you've been disobedient, I'm going to give you this big present. What? Well, you're a rebel. Yes. And I'm going to give you this present. Yeah, but I don't deserve it. Why are you doing this? See, that would be a gracious thing to do. And that's what God does to us. We are little rebels, big rebels. And we rebel against God, but God graciously gives us Eternal life when we place our faith in Jesus. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that we have earned it. So grace is receiving a gift you do not deserve. Mercy on the hand is not receiving what you do deserve. You do deserve the wrath of God. You do deserve to go to hell. You do deserve to be judged. But mercy holds back the judgment of God. Holds back the wrath of God so that mercy can come in and save you. And both of those things are undeserved. Both of those things are not earned. You don't deserve them. And so God doesn't need to even extend them to you. But many in their fallen state want to have a part in their salvation. They want to be saved by grace and kept by works or saved by grace plus works. You hear them say, oh, I sought God on my own and I found Christ and I believed And people who say things like this may profess to believe in salvation by grace, but in many cases, they really are trusting in what they did. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Here, Paul has just finished his big section saying that all men are sinners. And he says in Romans 3, 20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You can't do good works. You can't obey any law, God's law or anybody else's law, that's going to make you just or right in God's sight. Look down at verse 28. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You you can't do any good works. There's no law to obey that's going to get you saved. Turn over to Galatians chapter 2, which the whole problem with the Galatians was there was the thought that they could add some works into salvation. Maybe put a little Jewish law in there and make people be circumcised or whatever. And Paul says in Galatians 2.16, nevertheless... 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. I mean, he says about four times there. Works of the law do that, yeah, but what about, uh, you know, you know, not necessarily law things, but just being good. Well, later on in chapter 5, verse 4, if you look there, he's talking about those who thought, you know, uh, I'm going to be circumcised, but it doesn't matter what you add. Galatians 5, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You add works to grace and you're doomed because you've just nullified grace. You're really trusting in yourself. That's what he says. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. One book over, a couple pages to the right. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. These are familiar verses to many people. Many people have them memorized for a good reason. Paul has talked about how we're spiritually dead in the first few verses of the chapter and how God, by his love, grace, and mercy, saved us. And he says this as kind of a summary statement in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one should boast. The main verb here is, you have been saved. The verb is passive. And if you say, well, so what does that mean? It means this. It means God saves you. You don't save you. Say, if you threw a ball and hit me, okay, I would be passive and you would be active. You would be doing something to me. I would be receiving the action. Here, you have been saved. You receive the action of God saving you. That's what he's saying. Then you have all these little phrases that modify it. By grace, unearned, undeserved favor. We just talked about that. Through faith, and that not of yourselves. Gift of God. You don't earn a gift, and not a result of works. Just in case you thought that maybe there was a little bit of you in the mix. Don't even think about it. Five different ways he says it here. How much more do you need? In Romans chapter 11, verse 5, Paul, speaking of salvation by grace, says, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you add works to grace, grace is no longer grace. It's just all works. You add human effort, good works, Bible reading, church attendance, my parents are saved, whatever it is, you're trusting in your works, you're not going to heaven. There is only one way to get saved, and it is by God's grace and mercy, which are undeserved and un earned salvation is a sovereign act of god because he's the one who dispenses the grace to save those he does secondly god draws sinners to christ that's another reason we know god is sovereign turn to john 6 john chapter 6 god draws sinners to christ not the other way around all these people out there trying to find seekers God is seeking men. The men aren't seeking God. Turn to John 6 and look at verse 37. We're just going to look at a key verses here. He's just arrived in Capernaum. The crowds have gathered there because they're following him. And there's a lot of religious leaders. And he's in this dialogue with them. And he says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not 
cast out. How many come that are given to Jesus? All of them. How many are cast out? None. Father says, here's one for you. Jesus takes them and never loses them. Look down at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. Here Jesus emphasizes the security of all believers when God gives somebody to Jesus to save. And Jesus says them, he will not lose them, but will raise them up on the last day. It's definitive. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see God's sovereignty in this verse? You'd have to be blind or asleep right now not to see it. No one can come to Christ. No one unless the father who sent me draws him. And the word draw here is used in different Greek writings. For instance, of somebody pulling a mule against their will. Of dragging in a loaded net of fish. Of compelling somebody or dragging somebody to get into court. It's compelling. And this is where the whole concept of irresistible grace comes from, which we'll talk about in a minute. When God invades a person's life, his grace so overcomes them that they are drawn to Jesus and they come. But if you're trusting in your works, like many did back then, You may be offended by this text and these words just like they were back then. Because you're thinking, I know that I came to Christ because I, you fill in the blank there, you're not going to heaven. You think you're going to get to heaven because of what you did, you're not going there. You've nullified grace. Now, you could say, because I place my faith in Christ. The problem is, as we shall see, God gives you the faith and not only that, You believe, but only in response to the grace of God. We've already determined this, and that's why we spent so much time to show that no one comes to Christ on their own, right? There are none who seek after God, not even one. They will not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. They will not come to Christ for salvation. We looked up text after text to prove that. So if you do believe, know that you believe because of God's grace in your life. The legalistic Jews in the crowds were infuriated by what Jesus was teaching, just like many today. So Jesus summarizes what he means in verse 65. Look there, Jesus repeats himself and he says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. No one can come unless it's been granted. A grant is divine favor, blessing bestowed on somebody who doesn't deserve it. There is no other conclusion that can be reached except that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Third, God reveals the truth to sinners through the Holy Spirit. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I know we were just here, but we're going back again and we're going to be there in the future, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, 
That we may know the things freely given to us by God. In other words, he's talking about the Holy Spirit given to believers so that they can understand the truth. If you are, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you and you're spiritually dead, yes, you can read the pages of the Bible, but you can't know in a saving way, in an experiential way, in a life transforming way, the truth of the gospel unless the Holy Spirit intercedes. And he explains that if you look down at verse 14, contrasting what we just read about believers knowing the things freely given to them by God, he says, but the natural man, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, that is, Spiritual truth, spiritual wisdom, spiritual knowledge, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You have to understand the gospel in order to be saved, right? And the only one who can help you understand the gospel is the Holy Spirit, right? Which means that God is sovereign in salvation. The Holy Spirit's got the key. If he doesn't reveal, you don't come. You can't know. I mean, that's exactly what Luke's talking about. I praise you, O Father, because you have hidden these things and revealed these things. This makes God, the Holy Spirit, sovereign over who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. You know, when I go to Russia, I have to have a translator because there's most of the people there don't speak English. And believe me, if I didn't have a translator, they would be extremely boring. They'd be sitting there going, I wonder what he's saying. That's interesting. Mumbling. Uh, they would understand amen. Um, that's the same. And if I use the word chai, they know that one. But you know what? It would just be worthless. It would be meaningless. So you need the translator. You need the interpreter. And that is how unbelievers are. They need the Holy Spirit to invade their life, to translate, to illuminate, to interpret, so they can understand the word of God. You remember that we looked at Acts chapter 16, Verse 14, where Paul is preaching and he talks about Lydia um, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening. And it says, and the Lord did what? Opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by, uh, by Paul. God actually opened her heart so she got a clue. She got a clue. Jesus, in the section where he unloads a whole bunch of parables on his disciples says in Matthew chapter 13 verse 11 to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been granted a God is sovereign again that grant means to give a special privilege or blessing the word no is to have an intimate knowledge of something a mystery is a secret or a riddle of God that only God through divine agency of the Holy Spirit can reveal. Jesus is saying to you, it has been given a special privilege and blessing to have an experiential understanding of the things of God. But to them, it hasn't been granted, which means that God is sovereign in salvation because he's the one who flips the switch This is exactly what we see in our text. The first thing that Jesus praises the Father for, as a matter of fact, in Luke 10, verse 21 and 22. Four, God grants sinners saving faith. We talked about this in Ephesians 2, 8. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, there's some discussion about what that phrase, not of yourselves, means. It's not of yourselves talking about your salvation, since that's the main verb. Or does it talk about the nearest antecedent, which is faith? 
Or does it talk about everything that proceeds before it, grace, salvation, and faith? Well, the nearest antecedent, the closest thing mentioned is faith. But since all those phrases end up connecting your salvation, you could say it does relate to salvation, but salvation is by faith. And so either way, faith is not of yourself. Or you can take all three, that all three are not of yourself, which is true. You say, well, Jack, how do you know that? Because even if this verse wasn't here, I know of other scriptures. For instance, in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, Luke is telling us about Paul's missionary journey. And he he gets to the believers at Antioch. He's recounting what happened. And it says, and they begin to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. But you say, well, Jack, that's not very specific because opening the door of faith. I know God opened the door of faith, but they had the faith, right? Philippians chapter one, verse 29. If that one doesn't work, Paul says to the Philippians for to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake. Same word granted by divine blessing and favor. God is going to grant you something for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his namesake. God grants you the ability to believe in Christ. That's what it says. And some think to themselves, well, yes, a person is saved by grace through faith, but I had to believe in order to be saved. It was me, myself, who believed and not God. I did it myself on my own. I'm telling you, this is dangerous ground to tread on. If you think, if what you're saying is, is you came to Jesus apart from the grace of God, giving you the faith to believe. Yes, you believed, if you know Christ, and you were saved by faith, but the reason you were able to have that faith is because of the grace of God, which was working before you believed. Let's just say you're purchasing your first house, and uh, you're driving around in the neighborhood with your realtor. It's a certain neighborhood you want to live in. And uh, he pulls up in front of a house that is a disaster. I, and it's got the saggy roof, the broken windows, the dead landscaping overgrown with weeds. And he says, let's look at this house. And you're thinking, Mm-mm. he says, come on, I'm going to show you this house. So you're thinking, oh, great. So you get out of the car. And as soon as you get out, you go, what's that smell? That's the house. So you're walking over, you know, broken shards of glass on the broken concrete walkway. He gets up to the lockbox to take it off the doorknob and the doorknob just falls off because the whole door is just rotted and termite infested. So he just pushes it in. And inside the house, it is nasty. You're just walking around. There's grease and grime and dirt and filth and mold growing over all the bathrooms. It's just And all you can think of is, no way. There is no way I'm going to buy this house. I am not going to live here. What are we doing here anyways? And as you're sitting there, you're thinking, I don't even know why I'm here. I mean, what's wrong with this realtor? And the realtor says, you know, this house is a good deal. And you just say, listen, I would never buy this house. I would never live here. And this is how it is for unbelievers. When you talk to them about Christ, repenting of their sin, turning away from Christ, 
They're thinking to themselves, I would never do that. I would never give up my sin. I would never become a religious fanatic. I've never become a Bible thumper. I would never believe those stupid things they believe and have God telling me what to do in every area of my life. I would not live there. Then the realtor, right before you leave, goes, ah, one other thing I got to show you here. And he pulls out a little piece of paper out of his pocket and he unfolds it. And he says, you know, the previous owner of this house wanted me to show you this house. And he wanted me to tell you it was in this letter. And you say, well, what is it? Well, before he died, he wrote me this letter, told me to show you the house and said that if you are willing to purchase this house at a fair market value, he is willing to give you his entire inheritance as long as you continue to live at this address. And now you're a little curious. So was the guy a millionaire? No, no. The realtor says he was a billionaire. Now the house is looking pretty good. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it's the only smart thing to do. It's compelling. It's irresistible. You've got to buy this house. You can knock it down and build a new one. And what made the difference? Because at first, you didn't know all the truth. You didn't understand all the facts. And so to you, what moments earlier was repulsive has now become compelling. And obviously, the only smart choice. And that's how it is with God's grace. Before you come to Christ, it's just like, no way am I going to have this dead carpenter reigning in my life. Well, he's not dead. Oh, sure. And then when God's spirit invades your life and he shows you the truth and you see your sin and you see Christ and his sacrifice and his love for you, it becomes compelling and you're, you're okay, we'll take it. It's the only smart choice. I mean, who wants to go to hell? Who wants to perish? And so God's grace invades you and you are broken. You are humbled. You repent and you believe of your own will because of the grace of God. Five, God grants sinners repentance. Repentance is the flip side of faith. To repent is to stop trusting and living for sin. Faith is to start trusting and living for Christ. You have to let go of one to grab the other. You have to turn from sin to turn to Christ. And that is why all the apostles and Jesus and John the Baptist went out preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unless you repent, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. God is now declaring that all men everywhere should repent, Paul says in Acts chapter 17. And so people say, well, repentance obviously is an act that we do. I mean, we repent. Listen to this, Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter's preaching. And he, that is Jesus, is the one who God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Who grants it? God does. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, Peter is sharing with the believers in Jerusalem about the salvation of, for you can imagine, Gentiles. And 
Incredible. And Luke writes, and when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Paul in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul tells Timothy to correct, be gentle when he's correcting those in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. What does all this mean? God gives repentance. God grants repentance. So repentance is of who? God. That is why God is sovereign in salvation, because he grants repentance. And sixth and finally, God regenerates sinners by his grace. Regeneration describes the transformation of an unbeliever into a believer. And it it is that supernatural work. And you know, people argue about what is called, and I hate to throw this term out to you, the ordo salutus. You ever heard that term? The order of salvation. Now, does God regenerate us and then we believe and then we're saved? Or does God make it so we believe and regenerated simultaneously? Or do we believe and then immediately after that are regenerated? Who cares? It just happens. Okay? The scriptures say it happens. All right, it happens. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John says, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born, that's the key phrase there, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but God, who were born, again, regenerated, made new. Remember Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The whole birth there, the spiritual birth concept is talking about regeneration, the transformation. Titus chapter three, verse five, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. What does this tell us? God is sovereign in salvation. He is the one who causes people to be born again. And so what have we learned here? The only thing that can break down the internal and external barriers which keep people from coming to Christ is the gospel bomb. And God says, carpet bomb the world. (laughs) Secondly, we learn that God is sovereign in salvation because one, it is God who saves us by his grace, not by our works. It is God, secondly, the Father who draws sinners to Christ. Thirdly, it is God, the Holy Spirit, who reveals truth to sinners so that they can understand the gospel and be saved. Four, it is God who grants sinners saving faith. Five, it is God who grants sinners repentance. And six, it is God who regenerates a sinner and causes them to be born again. And that is why we teach at Calvary Bible Church that God is sovereign in salvation, because that's what the Word of God teaches. Well, that's not all it teaches. And you have to come back for more later. But here we are. We're going to head out. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is God's message to you. Jesus died on the cross bore the sins of the world, was buried and rose again in the third day. If you are willing to turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will save you. For those of you who know Christ, 
When you leave here and you know that aunt, that uncle, that mom, that dad, that brother, that sister, that neighbor, that coworker, and you just wish they'd come to the Lord, drop the bomb. And you know, if they won't surrender, drop another one. It took two for Japan. Come on. Some of you guys took 50 bombs. The bomb is the only thing that works. Don't go arguing about a bunch of sub-issues. Don't go dancing around the gospel. Just drop the bomb. Okay, I won't talk about the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for sins, was buried and rose again the third day. I, I refuse to talk about your needing to place your faith in him in order to have eternal life. I mean, if you don't want to repent and you don't want to receive Christ as your Savior, then we won't talk about it. You just hit him. I mean, get it out there. Get it out there somewhere. But get it out there. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word because it does make it very clear that you are sovereign in salvation. You are the God who saves sinners because they are helpless to save themselves. We have seen that beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning. Father, if there's anybody here who has never repented of their sins, who's never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, may your grace right now invade their lives. May they cry out to you in their pew where they sit and ask you to deliver them that they might forevermore be in heaven, be with Jesus and have the free gift of eternal life granted to them. For the rest of us, help us to open the hatches and drop the bomb of the gospel and all those who need salvation. And may we not fear men. May we not doubt the power of your word. And Father, may we not fear collateral damage because the salvation of souls are at stake. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.